sí. Let me just say thank you to our worship team for leading us so beautifully in that, in that hymn. You did a wonderful job, and praise God for your gifts and for the way that you help us to worship God together. I don't know if you, uh, when you were a kid, if you played certain imaginary games, um, like when you travel back in time. Anybody ever played time travel when you were a kid? I mean, you don't call it that, but you pretend you're in a different era of history. You imagine what would it be like to live in, in you know, when, when, as a young boy, it was always the... Western frontier of America, right? Or the Middle Ages, knights in shining armor. I never thought about the Black Plague or the fact that you die young. I just wanted to pretend that I was in that era, you know. I, don't know if, I still do this. I don't know if you do this. I drive across country and I look out the window and I see and I will think, what was it like here 200 years ago, 300 years ago? Do you ever do that? Imagine in your mind, is it or just me? I still play childhood games in my mind. Perhaps that's just me. What would it be like? Where would you go if you could travel back in time? Where, what era would you go to? Yesterday? Would you fix something that you did wrong yesterday? How far back would you go? In this Advent series, we're going to play a little imaginary game, a thought experiment, travel back some 2,000 plus years, and together try to get inside the mind of God's people, Israel, just before Jesus was born. What was it like? What was the culture like? What was the spirit of the age like? What kind of things were they dealing with? What, how, what was the collective sort of ethos of, the, of that culture? You know, frankly, we're living in a moment culturally speaking, in America, in the world, but particularly in the U.S., that sociologists are going to study, you and me. They're going to study us years from now. They're going to look back and think, what was that like, living through a global pandemic and with the racial tensions and political divisions and that are happening in our land? We're living in that moment. So let's go back and imagine what was it like then. Well, in many ways, it was not all that different. They faced the, some of the same issues. There were political divisions. There were racial and ethnic tensions. There was economic disparity. There was abuses of political power and otherwise, other words. There was facing your own mortality, which many of us have had to do in a way that we didn't before, which they did on a daily basis. But if we could do that, I think we'd find that one of the things we'd notice is there, was a, there would be a collective sense of anticipation among God's people. A, a spirit of hopeful longing and waiting for God to do something, for God to come and for, to break in and to fix things a longing for Messiah, the Deliverer, to come. You would feel it in the air. People would talk about it. It would be a subject of discussion. I think we'd feel that. It, the Old Testament prophets, the later prophets, and the New Testament writers tell us that's what it was like. You hear it in the misunderstandings of the disciples of Jesus. You hear it in the Pharisees and religious leaders, the way they react to him and the claims that he makes. So they're waiting for Messiah to come, and they're waiting in a, what we might call a very dark time. In fact, Fleming Rutledge uh, has a series of Advent sermons, a collection of her sermons, and one of the famous, most famous ones says, Advent begins in the dark. And I, before we get into the subject matter for our series, we're starting Advent. And I think many of us in the church today confuse Advent with Christmas time. They're not the same. 
Christmas time, culturally speaking, is put up the lights. How many put your lights up this, on Friday or Saturday? Anybody? Yeah? You did it properly. How many put yours up after Halloween? Shame on you. <laughs> but we put up the lights. Starbucks has the cups now for months. Hallmark never stops making Christmas movies. The season never ends, and it's all glitz and glitter and joy to the world and happy clappy, and we want to jump right to the fun. Santa Claus is coming to town and all of that. That has nothing to do with the Chris, Christian celebration of Advent. Advent begins in the dark. For God's people then, some 2,000 years ago, it was the dark of no prophets speaking for 400 years. The dark of silence from God. Also the dark of Roman oppression, foreign occupation. For us, it's the dark of corruption, sin, a world gone mad. We, like them, are waiting for God to break in and do something. In fact, we live, in a sense, between two Advents. So I'm going to draw something for you, if I can swing it. That hopefully this image will help you uh, grasp our position in the story we're telling. If not, you get to watch me draw. So there's the first Advent, which we all know what that is. That's the child Jesus born in a manger. You didn't know that he was bald and had a perfectly round head, did you? And we look back to the first advent in wonder and in gratitude and in awe of what God did, the incarnation. We'll talk about that in a minute. But there's a second advent. You know what that is? God will break in again. Jesus will come again. Advent comes from a Latin word, adventus, meaning arrival or coming. We look back to God's first arrival on earth as a child, humble child, and he will return in power and glory, a very different advent. So we'll try to draw what that looks like. Whoop. You'll be, be patient and enjoy the drawing. When, when Jesus returns, it will not be humility uh, in a manger, in obscurity where, that nobody sees. It'll be in power and in glory. I don't know why, but he always has a sash, and so we have to do that. When, when he, the second advent happens, and I don't know why that's happening either, it's power and glory. And so we look forward to this advent. And the truth is, we live here. This is where we are, between the advents, between the first and the second coming of Jesus. And so it's, it's, we, we, in a sense, go back during the advent season as God's people and get inside the mind of Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist and all the faithful of God who are longing for God to come because we, too, are longing for his return to set the world right, to fix what's wrong. We live between the advents. And our cultural celebration of Christmas has nothing to do with this. Just think of the songs we sing. Santa Claus is coming to town or Silent Night. What could be more different? And there's nothing wrong with the Christmas celebration of our culture. I enjoy it. I enjoy all the, the, the nostalgia of it and the celebrations of it. And I'm sure you do as well. But it's not the same thing. I want to be clear about that. In fact, those of you who put your lights up, I hung the wreaths in our windows. We have a very specific way. We're serious at our house. You know, lights, candles in the windows, only white lights, wreaths on the windows with the red bows. I did all that yesterday. And I was thinking to myself as I was doing that, in less than a month I have to take this down. <laughs> it's going to be over. This, the cultural season comes to an end, right? Advent is different. Advent prepares us 
to enter into the darkness, the silence, the waiting, the hopeful expectation of what God will do. So that's crucial for us to understand. Now, the way we're going to prepare over the next four weeks is by examining the songs that Christians have sung in Advent and the theological meaning in them and the text on which they're based. We just sang one. Beautiful rendition of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. And we're going to look at four great hymns of Advent and the Old Testament prophecies on which they're based. So in, hope, in hopes that we would grow deeper in understanding of what it is we long and wait for, and that you would never sing those songs the same again. They would balance out, perhaps, the, the shallow Christmas songs we sing sometimes. So... The first, as I mentioned a moment ago, the first hymn is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And we're not going to examine every verse. This, this hymn goes, dates back to the uh, 8th century. It was in the mid-700s, an English poem with 12 stanzas. It was an acrostic about Christ the Savior. It got adapted to seven verses in the 13th century and then set to music as we know it with five verses sometime in the 19th century. It's a very ancient song that Christians have been singing for a long time. Verse 1, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. If you were here last week, we, we finished the first half of our series in the Gospel of Mark called Following the King. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there's a longing for Emmanuel to come and ransom Israel, that's the people of God, who are captive that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. This verse has ancient Israel in mind when they were held captive. Now, there was a number of captivities. This first one uh, was in Egypt. You know that story. There, there are slaves in Egypt. There will be the Babylonian captivity, the Assyrian, then there's Persian occupation and Greek oppression and Roman oppression, but it has Israel in mind whose story was one of captivity. And their physical captivity was the result of spiritual rebellion. So it is with us. We too today mourn in lonely exile of our own sin, of a world far from God, of corruption, of loss, until the Son of God appear. To ransom us, to pay the freedom price for our liberation. Maybe you think, well, that's ancient stuff. I don't feel like I'm held captive today. We, we celebrate the value of freedom in America. But have you ever felt really stuck in your life? Have you ever felt that you were powerless against your own destructive thought patterns? Your own fears, your own anxieties, your own worries, your own choices that you can't stop making those destructive choices? We've all been held captive and are to our own sinfulness and need to be ransomed and set free. But the heart and center of the hymn is the name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Now, if you see it with an E, that's the Greek translation of the word. If you see it with an I, it's the Hebrew one, but it's the same. It has the same meaning. I said that backwards, actually. It has the same meaning, meaning God with us. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 14. And again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, King Ahaz in the Old Testament, a sign of the Lord your God, let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. And I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And this very prophecy from the Old Testament is quoted in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. 
This, we read this every Christmas time. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. All of you have heard this, read this, perhaps know this. Emmanuel, God with us. I think that name and that meaning may be among the most significant, most encouraging words in all the world. God with us. God's with us. Even if we don't recognize that, that, that fact, the longing for God to be with us, I think, is, is inside every human heart. It's in our culture. It's in yours. It's in mine. It was in theirs 2,000 years ago. Where is God? Who, who of us hasn't prayed that prayer? Where are you, God? Are you paying attention to what's going on in, down here? Do you care? Are you with me? Are you with us? Even if we wouldn't name it that way, even for those that d- deny the existence of God, there is a hunger in the human heart to know that there's something or someone out there who knows me and who cares, who sees. Isaiah 41.10 has been a verse of encouragement in my life for many years. For, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I think the words God with us, that ought to be your theme this Advent season. Maybe some of you need to hear that. God is with you. But it's tempting to doubt that, to question it, to wonder if it's true. It seems almost as if our culture and our own hearts are conspiring to cause us to disbelieve that God is with us, that he's absent, that God is sort of like the absentee landlord. He made the world and he's in charge, but he's not very involved. He owns it. Or like a stepfather in the sky, you know, he's, he's unpredictable, he might get you. Just try to stay out of, out, of, out of trouble. Or the Santa Clausification of God, I like to call it, right? You better watch out, you better not pout, you better not cry, I'm telling you why. God's watching. He knows if you've been naughty or nice. He's got a list up in heaven. We confuse who he actually is. But the promise of Emmanuel is that he's come near, he's with you. Close to you, nearer to you. This is the truth we need to hear. In fact, if you feel like God is far from you, how many of you have ever felt like God is distant and far off and you don't feel his nearness? Show of hands. If your hand's not up, you've stopped listening or lying right here in church, right? I think every, I felt that way. Every one of us has felt at one time or another, I, I don't feel the nearness of God. Very nine times out of ten, if that's your experience, who has moved? You or God? In my life, when I begin to feel God's distance, as if he's distant, the truth is I have moved. I have stopped praying. I have stopped reading his word. I have stopped attending to those things that cultivate a closeness to God. He has not moved. He is always near. He's Emmanuel. And he's not only near to us spiritually in some abstract sense, he's near to us physically, we're told. The incarnation is that he came near. How much nearer do you get than taking on flesh? You can't get any closer. He takes on the flesh of a human being. He becomes one of us, enters into our world. This is amazing. And in fact, in Genesis 3, those of you who know, and we're going to do a lot of theological um, twists and turns in this sermon and this series because there's so much richness in these hymns and in these prophecies. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned. We all have inherited that sin and committed the same sin. Rebellion against the God who loves us and who made us. And what's the consequence of that sin? 
The overall, there, there is shame, there's hiding, but the consequence is separation from God, we say. You can no longer have the fellowship you once had with him because of your sin. We moved, right? And there's a consequence to that. Emmanuel, the incarnation, is God taking the first step to close that gap again, to come near to us, because we could not come near to him, to become one of us. It's God's reclamation and restoration project in the flesh. J.I. Packer says of the incarnation, it is by far the most amazing miracle in the whole Bible, the fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to human nature will remain the most profound and wonderful mystery in all the universe. I have a good friend who's a pastor, and we used to debate, what's the greater miracle? Is it the resurrection or the incarnation? I used to say the resurrection. I mean, defeating death, that's pretty good. He says, but there would be no resurrection if there wasn't an incarnation. It wouldn't even make sense if there wasn't an incarnation. So I guess J.I. Packer and my pastor friend are right. The greatest miracle in all the world, God of the universe, comes near in the flesh, one of us. But if you think about the story of Advent, the first Advent, he comes near to us, and almost nobody saw it. The greatest miracle, most profound, beautiful mystery in the universe, and most people totally missed it. It happened in obscurity. Isn't that strange? But he still came near. And the world has not been the same. All right, verse 2. I know, we're not going to cover all verse this long. You won't be here till 2 p.m. We're going to go quicker. O come thou dayspring, come and cheer. Our spirits by thine advent, meaning arrival here, disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Dayspring, that, that name here, dayspring, that comes as a translation or a reinterpretation of uh, a prophecy given by Zechariah. Zechariah is John the Baptist's uh, father. He's a priest in the New Testament, and his wife, Elizabeth, is pregnant with John the Baptist, and he pronounces, uh, inspired by God, to pr- prophesy over what his son's life will be. We read about that in Luke chapter 1, verses 76 through 79. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High God, meaning John, John the Baptist. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise, that's the same root word as dayspring there, shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Sunrise, dayspring, dawn break, that's the image. What does it mean to sing about Messiah, Jesus, as dayspring or sunrise? What's he saying there? Jesus is the sunrise. He's the breaking of a dawn into a dark world. This is, we see this in the great uh, prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. And some of you, if you don't know the reference, you'll know it from Handel's Messiah, which is essentially a remake, retelling of the whole story in Isaiah 9 uh, through, through song. Isaiah 9 verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. On those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. This is the image. The world is in darkness, spiritual, moral darkness, and it still is. And Emmanuel means God in Christ has turned the lights on. C.S. Lewis famously said that I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. 
I not only see Jesus, but the light of Christ illumines my mind, my eyes, so I see my own life, I see your life, I see this world differently than before. Light is shown on my mind and on my heart, we're told. Apart from God, in other words, you and I are stumbling around in the dark. You feel that way sometimes during the last 20 months or so? Where, where can you find accurate information on anything? Just fumbling around in the dark. The story of Advent is that God has turned the lights on, and what you need to know, he's made clear in his son. Crystal clear. Dayspring. Dawn has broken. I remember years ago when I was in Ecuador, the very first time we took a trip of high school students to Ecuador, I was a high school pastor then some 20 years ago, a long time ago now. Every time I tell a story, it's further back. I get older. We were, uh, the property is called El Refugio, and it's a beautiful Christian retreat and uh, camp, which we have helped to build and prepare and pray for over the, over the decades. But this is the first time we went there. They didn't even own the property yet, but we had permission to sleep there. We slept at 10,000 feet uh, in tents and uh, at the top of the ridgeline of their property, and we got up early, early before the sun rose and to, to watch it rise over the mountains, and looking down at this mountain valley in this little village, the, the clouds were below us. It looked like someone spread marshmallow whip in the valley. We're above the clouds with these high school students. It's dark. We're sitting together, freezing, our sleeping bags around us, waiting for the sun to rise, just waiting, you know, for the first little... And it's, if you've ever done that, just in the total darkness, wait for sun to rise, and you see the first glimmer, orange and rose-colored, and then it comes up over the mountain. It was, it was indescribably beautiful with these students to see dawn rise. And that's the image in my mind of Advent. We're sitting in the dark, together, longing, waiting for it to come. And that's very different than put up the lights, turn on the music, flip on the Hallmark movie. That has its place, but it's not the same thing I hope you see to prepare our hearts for what Advent means. Okay, verse four. O come thou rod of Jesse... Free. Rod, rod meaning a branch, shoot. The, the rod simply means like a, an offshoot, a branch of Jesse. Free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory or the grave. What's the rod of Jesse? The, uh, the branch, the shoot, the rod of Jesse. Jesse is David's father, King David, Israel's greatest king. Uh, and he is the youngest of his brothers, but he becomes Israel's greatest king. He slays the giant Goliath. You all know that story. But he becomes sort of this, the icon, the type of the ruler who would come. When people talked in, in remember our 2,000-year experiment going back in time, they would talk about the throne of David, the root, uh, uh, the line of David as that's the line from which the, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to be better than David, a true righteous king to rule us with perfect justice and righteousness, to restore all things. They long for this. They hope for this. Similar, but way less so, every election season, every four years, we long for something. And it never happens. And this is not, I have my political sensibilities and so do you. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying, which of you, if we're honest, we could just step out of our own political ideologies for a minute. Has there ever been a candidate ever who has promised and over-delivered? Has that ever happened? Have you ever gone, this guy's better than I ever thought? It's never happened. They always over-promise and under-deliver. And they can't help it. There's a hunger in our hearts for a ruler, for a king, for a leader who will be the opposite would rule with perfect justice and righteousness. And for the Jews of, of, of the day, it was David's line, David's throne, the rod of Jesse, 
would come from him. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. A king, a ruler, from this line will deliver God's people. We're told in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus was uh, born to Mary and Joseph, and Joseph was of the house and the line of David. He was born into a family that was connected to David's line, Jesse's line, that is. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, this is God's covenant with David about David's throne. God's speaking to David, the king, about what his throne's going to mean. He says, your kingdom and your house shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. How's that going to happen? How is his throne going to be established forever? David's dead and gone. Back to Isaiah 9 once more, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the promise is, David, your political national throne now is only a glimpse of what will happen and last forever. But how's that going to happen? A ruler who would come, come thou rod of Jesse free, thy people from Satan's tyranny. Not Rome's, Satan's. The power of sin and darkness. Sin and evil and defeat Give them victory or the grave. Defeat death, what the Bible calls the final enemy. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin, and the curse of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory over the grave. I personally long for this kind of leader. Don't you? I've become, you know, on Facebook, they, they ask you your political views. You fill out your profile. I put increasingly cynical, and then I deleted it. (laughs) I don't know who to look to on this earth, in this world, but I do, and so do you. So what do we take from all this, this living between the advents? What does it mean specifically? Like, okay, great, you walk out here thinking there's a lot of rich theology and Old Testament stuff in this hymn, cool, but what do we do about that? How does that affect our lives? Let's go back to our little drawing for just a minute. Um, what does it mean for us to live between the advents, right here? How do we live there? What's, what is it like? Well, actually, the hymn tells us. If you listen to the hymn when we sang it, there are these verses that have this pensive longing, right? O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thy people from Satan's tyranny. O come, O come, Emmanuel, to ransom us captive, lonely in our exile. These longing. And then there's a refrain between every one of these verses of longing. What's the refrain? Say it. What's the refrain? Oh, oh, that's weak. Right? Those of you online can say it louder right at home. Rejoice! Rejoice! Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. So in a word, what it means to live between the advents is rejoice. That's We should be people of joy living between the advents because of what has happened and what will happen. And and joy is different than the superficial happiness of the Christmas season. It's much deeper, much stronger. And you can rejoice even when the world looks like it's a mess, even when your own family feels like it's falling apart, even when your own life is not as you would have it. Because Emmanuel has come, and he will come. Rejoice, we're told. Let's go back again. And look at that refrain. 
We're told in the verse, rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee. Shall come, will come to you, to me. The rhythm of longing in this hymn is kind of, it's beautiful. It, it, it describes the Christian life. Longing, it's not quite here yet. I don't feel it or see it. I hunger for this. And yet rejoice, rejoice, because he's going to come. And yet it isn't right, and there's the shadow of death, and, and there's the gloom, and there's lots to be anxious and fearful about. But rejoice, rejoice, for he's coming. Which of us can't relate to that? I love the word joy. It's my wife's middle name, Aaron Joy. We loved it so much we named our daughter Hannah Joy. My administrative assistant, Jenny Cater, and her husband, Matt, had a baby girl, Kylie Joy. I love the name Joy. I love the word Joy. Ultimately, for our joy to have any lasting meaning or power in our lives, it must be located somewhere. And it's not in the tree. It's not in the lights and the candles and the songs and the presents. It's in Emmanuel. If you're going to have any lasting joy this Advent season, locate your joy in the one who has come to be near you and to be with you, to ransom you. Last verse, Isaiah 35, verse 10. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now we're looking forward to the second Advent. Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 18. For behold, I create the new heavens and new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. C.S. Lewis says in, his le- in a book called Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, joy is the serious business of heaven. It should be the mark of the Christ follower. Last verse from the hymn. And this verse, when I first started preparing for this, this struck me as a verse for our time. O come, desire of nations bind, all peoples in one heart and mind. By the way, when you see the word nations there in the, in the New Testament, it doesn't mean nation states, like we think about, like, a, like, like a, the nation of the United States of America or Russia or China. It doesn't mean that. It means uh, peoples, groups, ethnic groups. Come, desire of all people over all the earth, Bind us together in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. Who doesn't want that today? And fill the whole world with heaven's peace. How much better to sing that than Santa Claus is coming to town? Last, I'll leave you with this. C.S. Lewis, I have to quote him once more, says in, in his classic Mere Christianity, which he gave, by the way, his broadcast talks on the BBC radio station during World War II. People living in a dark time, an uncertain time. He says, if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, and eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you're close to it, the spray will wet you. If you're not, you remain dry. This Advent season, if you want to be showered with joy... Get close to Emmanuel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are Emmanuel. You are close to us even when we doubt it, even when we don't feel it. You are never far from us. You are closer to us sometimes than we are to ourselves. And we thank you and praise you for that. And we ask that this season, as we embark on these next four weeks as as individuals and as families and as a church family, 
that you help us to celebrate and prepare well. To see clearly the difference that while Advent begins in the dark, it ends in glorious light. Because light has come. You have come. Jesus, our Emmanuel. So, Lord, prepare us. Speak the words that we long to hear and need to hear in us. Help us to live between the Advents well, with great joy, with awe and gratitude as we look back, and with hope and expectation as we look forward. Rejoicing all the way. We pray in your name. Amen. Would you all stand?
Brothers and sisters, as you go from here this Advent season, may the light of Christ shine in your hearts. And may you know what it means to rejoice as you live between the Advents. To Jesus, our Messiah, our Emmanuel, be all glory and honor and praise now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.